Oh, Father, you've been my friend. Oh, Father. You've been my friend. When I was in trouble. You stayed with me to the end. From Critical Frequency, this is B. Beeman, and you're listening to Peace of Mind. I'm a singer-songwriter and producer, I'm a dad, and I'm an American. Peace of Mind is an experiment. It's my new album, but I'm releasing it as a podcast. Today's episode is called Have a Little Faith, and the theme is religion and faith. Our guests today are religious scholar and author Reza Aslan, attorney and advocate Rabia Chowdhury. We'll also hear more from best-selling author and activist Dave Eggers. And a little bit later, I'll be breaking down how I wrote and produced today's song, Have a Little Faith. I grew up surrounded by people of all faiths, and this wasn't the West Coast or the East Coast of America. This was the Midwest, flyover country. This was St. Louis, Missouri. I had friends and classmates who were Catholic, Baptist, Mormon, Muslim, Buddhist, Jewish, and everything else. And my family is Hindu, but when my dad first came to the U.S., he was sort of adopted into a large Catholic Filipino family. And I've gone to Midnight Mass many a Christmas Eve. I've even praised the Lord a time or two. So I really do believe in that original Hindu philosophy that promotes religious pluralism. That is, accepting without question that other people and religions can indeed exist alongside each other. I actually grew up down the street from the first Hindu temple in St. Louis. We would go somewhat regularly, but honestly, sometimes it was just about the cafeteria food. And actually, on that street, Wideman Road, there's a mosque, the first in St. Louis, and a Christian church, probably the 500th. It was like a religious utopia. Now, as a grown man, I am, as they say, agnostic. I don't know what the hell's going on. And I talked about that a bit with Glenn Washington, our guest from episode one. When you say you're agnostic, oftentimes people think that's a squishy thing that means nothing. But I've had experiences that feel like I'm bumping up against the divine, that there's something else there, that potentially there's something before and after death. There's a lot of God in, like, science and and physics and things like that. There's some very... Just like when you study some of these mathematical things and in space, these mathematical equations are floating there and they were Yeah, dive it's deep. a structure of the universe. Yeah. And we just discovered it. But it's a backbone of every single thing that's ever happened. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what the hell? Yeah. It's either random or divine or it's just like, I don't know. It's, and, and I think that that's what's magical. I like the squishiness. I I, I like that. Glenn and I are completely devoted to the church of religious squishiness, and we will start a holy war over it. Sadly, in reality, many, many wars are started over religion because religion isn't just about beliefs and practices. It's also about identity. And sometimes, let's just say that that can muddy the waters. I spoke about this with my next guest, author and religious scholar Reza Aslan. His family left Iran during the Islamic Revolution, which, as Reza explained, wasn't even about religion when it started. Yeah, I was born in 1972 in Tehran. And by the time that I was seven, so 1979, is when this revolution started. It's the largest, most popular revolution in history. 
um, insofar as the percentage of a population that took part in it. Rich, poor, uh, religious, atheist, uh, left, right. I mean, everyone took part in this revolution because everybody was essentially um, united around the notion that the, the Shah had to go, that he was a corrupt, out-of-touch, um, repressive dictator running a police state. And for me, it was just kind of all so exciting. I think about some of my most indelible memories, and they're not even about the protests and the demonstrations. The thing that I remember most is how my best friend and I uh, used to play chess. And one day, he was just like, I'm not allowed, to, I won't play chess anymore. And I was like, what? Why? And he said, because it's a game in which the pawns have to sacrifice themselves to save the king. And he's, we're seven. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is a real political awakening for me. My dad, on the other hand, was a rabid atheist. And people don't remember this, but Khomeini, when he came back to Iran, he was not the leader of this revolution. It was a popular revolution. It was a ground-up revolution. It was not a religious revolution at all. It was actually led by pragmatists and secularists and, and Western-educated liberal elites. It's just that Khomeini was sort of the voice of the lower classes. He was the rallying cry behind it. And when he came back to Iran after the Shah left, after, you know, he was, he was in exile for like three decades. He came back, he said that he didn't want to have anything to do with politics, that, you know, the Shah was gone, but he just wanted to be left alone. You know, he wanted to go back to his studies and his home. And my dad was like, bullshit. And so just in case, maybe we should leave for a while and see what happens. And so we left, came to the U.S., and sure enough, he was right. You know, within a few months, the hostage crisis happened. A few months after that, Khomeini took over, abolished the government, wrote a new constitution, giving himself all powers, and the Islamic Republic of Iran was born. Over how many months and years would you say? You know, he, he arrived in February of 1979. The hostage crisis happened in November of 1979. By the spring of 1980, it was now the Islamic Republic. That's so crazy. It's insane. That's a blink of an eye. It's a blink of an <laughs> eye. Yeah. Maybe you're too young to remember this, but how is your your dad and your mom ingesting this stuff through the news in America or newspapers? We arrived and then very quickly the hostage crisis happened. Mm. So... It was, it was all yeah. encompassing. October 22nd, the president decides the Shah should be let in to New York Hospital, but not before... The, the American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight, spurred on by the Ayatollah Khomeini. Iranian students continue to hold more than 50 hostages at the American embassy in Tehran. We continue to face a grave situation now in Iran. beginning their sixth day of captivity. You know, like it was nonstop, it was everywhere, yeah, okay. and it was all the time. You know, there were protests on our streets. People wouldn't cash my father's work checks because he was Iranian. At school, like, kids would wear Bomb Iran t-shirts. It was everywhere, all the time, nonstop. And you seem like an upbeat kind of kid. <laughs> you probably, like, let it roll off your back. I, You know, when you're seven or eight years old, you uh, you don't know how to lean into things. And so you avoid them. And so I did, we were in a big immigrant community. So I did what uh, most people would do in that situation. I just lied and told everybody I was Mexican. Mm. 
<laughs> the big joke, of course, is that that tells you how little I knew about America. <laughs> what I, I mean, what I discovered is that Americans aren't that fond of Mexicans either. <laughs> Reza is a preeminent expert on religion. Although he comes from a Muslim background, he has spent his entire life studying the ins and outs of the world's religions. So the study of religion is essentially divided in two. There's theology, which is the study of God, right? It's like, what is God and what is the nature of existence and all of that stuff? Mm -hmm. And then there's religious studies, which is an academic discipline that approaches religion through a historical lens or an anthropological lens or a sociological lens. And usually scholars pick one of those lenses and focus on it. And mine happens to be historical and sociological. And how did you go from being a seven-year-old immigrant here to getting there? Or was it? It's funny because like, you know, I didn't grow up in a very religious household. In Iran, you know, everybody is Muslim because that's just what you are. Um, except for my dad, who was a, you know, commie atheist. And then when we came to the United States, my dad was like, oh, well, good. Now that's it for that. I don't have to pretend anymore. And oh, by the way, this country hates Muslims. So perfect. <laughs> Let's just put it away now. And we did. Yeah. Um, you know, my mom, I would every once in a while walk in on her praying, mm -hmm. you know, occasionally. But that was it. Like we scrubbed our lives clean mm -hmm. of religion and especially of Islam. But I always had this sort of abiding interest in it, um, partly, I think, because of my experiences of revolutionary Iran, partly because I think of my dad's sort of insistence that we'd have nothing to do with it. <laughs> but it's just always been fascinating to me. I love myths and legends and fantasy and stories, the human condition, you know, things about God. And it just turns me on. <laughs> Even to this day. Like, you dabbled in, in Christianity as a young man. I did. When what? I was uh, 15, I... Um, was It was that same kind of curiosity, maybe? Just like, what is this? Partly it was that, you know, there was no outlet for my curiosity. Um, partly it was a way of belonging, you know? I mean, I always say that it doesn't really matter what color you are or how funny your name is. If you love Jesus, you're as American as George Washington, mm -hmm. right? Like Jesus is your welcome to America card. Like mm -hmm. your name could be Abdullah, mm -hmm. but if you love Jesus, you're fine, Yeah, you know? And so that was a big part of it. But part of it was that I had just never heard anything like that before. I mean, they call it the greatest story ever told. And there's a reason for it. It's a good story. The God of heaven and earth came down in the form of a baby, grew with us, lived with us, and then sacrificed himself so that anyone who believes in that sacrifice goes to heaven and lives for eternity. That is a powerful story. And I just absorbed it. I mean, 100%. But Reza's interest in Christianity didn't last too long. Like my friend Glenn Washington, Reza soon found out that the Bible is a text that was written over a long period of time and translated many times across many different languages. Yeah, that's the first thing that you learn yeah. in college, yeah, right? Yeah. Is that, oh, these are a <laughs> series of texts written by a hundred different people over a thousand years. Yeah. And, and it's full of errors and full of mistakes, mm -hmm. obvious ones. I mean, unapologetic ones. And the very notion, the very idea that the Bible is inerrant 
is barely a hundred years old. Mm-hmm. And there's the translations of it, and there's political reasons for the translations and the Absolutely. history of it. And yeah. the, I didn't know a lot about that, but that stuff is very interesting. Sinister, but interesting. <laughs> I think that it's important to understand that scripture without interpretation is just words on a page. You know, the reason that these these works have been around for thousands of years and the reason why people have read them and, and they've made meant so much to um, human civilization is because they tend to encompass the entirety of the human condition, the good and the bad. The way that you make sense of it has everything to do with who you are. Anyone who tells you that, you know, Islam is not a violent religion, it's a religion of peace. Islam is neither of those things. It's just a religion. If you're a violent person, then it's a violent religion. If you're a peaceful person, it's a peaceful religion. It's you, not the religion. Reza has defended Islam on television numerous times, but probably not with who you might think. Here he is on CNN. So Reza, the question at the bottom of the screen that everyone is looking at, does Islam promote violence? Islam doesn't promote violence or peace. Islam is just a religion, and like every religion in the world, it depends on what you bring to it. There are Buddhist monks in Myanmar slaughtering women and children. Does Buddhism promote violence? Of course not. People are violent or peaceful. So, Reza, you don't think the justice system in Muslim countries, you don't think, is somehow more primitive or subjugates women more than in other countries? Did you hear what you just said? You said in Muslim countries. Mm. I just told you that Indonesia, women are absolutely 100% equal to men. Mm. In Turkey, they have had more female representatives than we have in the United yes, States. In Pakistan, Stop saying are, things like Pakistan, Muslim countries. women are still being stoned. And that's a problem for Pakistan. Here again is that us and them mentality that social psychologist Lee Ross spoke about in episode four. Here's what religion is fundamentally. It is a matter of identity. It is far more a matter of identity than it is a matter of beliefs and practices. Of course, beliefs and practices are important, Mm -hmm. but they are secondary to the primary function of religion, which is to create not just identity, but collective identity, Mm -hmm. which you just called a community. Mm -hmm. It's about who is us, and who is not us. People are like scratching their heads trying to figure out why it is that Donald Trump, who is the living, breathing embodiment of everything Jesus preached against, why it is that 79% of American white evangelicals support this guy. Mm -hmm. I always try to remind people that, yes, it is astonishing that he received 80% of the white evangelical vote, which is more than George W. Bush received, and he was a white evangelical. Mm -hmm. But 67% of evangelicals of color voted for Hillary Clinton. Mm. Now, these are people who believe the same thing, who have the same theology. They just have a different skin tone, Mm. right? So let's not forget how much of this is just rank racism, Mm -hmm. okay? But let's put that aside for a moment. You have to understand these people don't care about Donald Trump's morality. They don't care that he's the opposite of what Jesus stands for. He, in their mind, is part of their tribe. He's one of their tribe. And 
that's an important thing to understand. And you have a lot of experience as a scholar, and you could probably help us out in maybe bringing some historical perspective to this takeover of the country of Donald Trump and this maybe this cultist thing that's going on it's um, a cult. among 36% or whatever yeah. it is. These. No, I mean, cult is the right word for it. You know, I've, I've, uh, I've written and spoken about this a lot. Um, and the Trump phenomenon uh, perfectly matches sort of all the markers of cult behavior that people like myself study. The overwhelming sense of siege, right? This refusal to believe your own eyes over the words of the cult leader, right? Or the um, words on the screen. Yeah. And the This notion of um, soul access to truth. That's the whole point of the, the fake news thing, right? Don't listen to anybody else. Don't listen to anyone because there's only one source of truth in this group, and it's what I say. It's shocking. That kind of descent into unquestioning cultish behavior happens very quickly. Um, and it is often enabled by people who are not believers, who are just simply there because they're taking some kind of advantage on it. And that's where we are now. I think we're in the worst place this country has been in a very, very long time. And I think that that requires, by the way, some measure of historical context. But nevertheless, it's pretty bad. Mm -hmm. What people don't get is that we're about one 9-11 style attack from the end of the republic as we know it. That's how close we are. Because it's easy to grab, just change the rules because we are under attack and the power needs to be consolidated here and here and yeah, and That's we have it, a mentally yeah. unstable narcissistic sociopath in charge. He seems like too stupid to do a lot of things. He, I mean, he's stupid, but he's also incredibly dangerous. And there's like this thing of American exceptionalism that I brought up earlier in that, oh, how could this happen to us? But it, to you, it's happened to your people. To me, it's happened to my people. Yeah. We live on Earth. We don't like. We don't live in this utopian. <laughs> What was that is, Matt yeah. Damon movie? We, yeah, exactly. Whatever, yeah. Where they're floating above everything. There's a Simpsons episode. I don't know if you ever watched The Simpsons when you were a kid, but there's a monorail episode. I think monorail, Cone, monorail, monorail, yeah. monorail. Trump is the monorail salesman. He is. Fully. Is there a chance the track could bend? Not on your life, my Hindu friend. I think that's Conan wrote that episode. Anyway, um, one of my favorite episodes, and it's just like... Yeah, he sold them this dream, then he bounced town with a bag full of money, and mm -hmm. they have this broken monorail system, and that's just where I feel like it's going. I also think that what we are witnessing right now is the inevitable flaws in the system. It's just been understood that whoever has that office would simply because of, you know, shame, mm -hmm. act accordingly. No one envisioned that the office would be inhabited by somebody who is utterly shameless. And shame is why all of this has worked so far. And the problem with the left, particularly with the Democrats, is that they think we're still playing the game. The sense of fairness just isn't getting anywhere. And it's, it's like not we're playing chess, anywhere. but they're jumping us with checker pieces and just like playing whatever game yeah. they want. You know? We're playing chess and they are beating us on the head with a baseball bat. You know, and we're like, oh, but 
but it's your move. That's not going to cut it right now. Be sure to check out Rez's latest book, God, A Human History, which comes out in paperback on April 9th. Our next guest may just be the reason you and the whole world got into podcasts in the first place. Because without Rabia Chowdhury, there would be no serial. In 2013, she famously brought the case of Adnan Syed to This American Life radio producer Sarah Koenig. And the rest is true crime podcast history. Now, I listened to Serial just like everyone else, and I loved it. But my wife, Katie, who is also executive producer on this podcast, was pretty much obsessed. She's a longtime listener of Rabia's podcast, Undisclosed, and has followed the case closely. So I thought it would be fitting that she conduct this interview. They started out by discussing the way Adnan's religion and culture were brought into the case and how that affected their close-knit Pakistani Muslim community in Maryland. I was curious what the effect was on the community when all this happened. Did the community ever recover? It was pretty devastating. Um, it was devastating on a couple of different levels. First was the fact that, honestly, we don't have a lot of police interactions in our community. Immigrants, despite what this administration might say, have very low levels of crime. As mostly they want to settle down and have good lives. Many of us come from countries where uh, the criminal justice system is extremely corrupt extremely corrupt. So you stay as far away from those things. So nothing like this had happened. Like no kids had ever gotten in trouble with the law in our community. And this wasn't a small charge. Then there was kind of Adnan's private life being opened up to the whole community. That was very mm -hmm. difficult, painful for his family and for him and also for the community. And on another level, there was the realization at the very first bail hearing that this is not just about his relationship with this girl or some evidence or facts or something the police have collected. They're making the religion, they're making the fact that he's Muslim evidence. Mm -hmm. And this is before 9-11. So that was shocking. You know, after 9-11, we heard a lot of it and we became prepared eventually to deal with it. It made people hypervigilant. They got stricter, they got more careful, and kids got scared too. Yeah. Because if they're saying religion has something to do with this, then they can pull all of our kids into this. I know a lot of people have said that you break the stereotype of what they think of as a Muslim woman. Um, how do you feel about that? And and has your relationship with faith and religion changed over the years? We were raised in kind of a traditional Pakistani home, which is not the same as like a traditional Muslim home. The religion is practiced differently depending on the cultural context. And so we were just a very mainstream kind of Pakistani family, not highly conservative, just kind of down the middle. None of the women in my family ever covered their head, wore a scarf. It just wasn't a thing culturally. We didn't do it. And it wasn't until later in life, post 9-11, 9-11 had a big impact on me. I think it had an impact on a lot of first and second generation Muslims in this country who were like, this is what everybody's telling me my religion is about. And I did a lot of self-study. I did a lot of searching for what is the truth here and what are the lies. And I became, through that, a more observant Muslim. I did. I began wearing this scarf on my own. In fact, I had gotten married, I got divorced, I was a single mom living by myself. And so it wasn't like there was any influence on me from anybody to, to start wearing a scarf. It just became to me, not just a symbol of my faith, but also an act of devotion to God because I became more observant. And so, you know, that, that's been important to me. And I, and I know it's 
true that people think that I break some kind of stereotype. It's a little bit painful to hear that because I am such an average Muslim woman. I mean, every Muslim woman I know is just like me. It's just in their work, their families, they're smart, they're funny, they're crazy, they love music, they like to dance. I mean, they're just normal. And the fact that yeah. being normal is breaking a stereotype kind of sucks. Do you make a distinction between faith and religion? I do. I think there are two different things. I think they're the spirit of the religion versus the law of the religion. I have a lot of issues in how it's organized, in how the male gatekeepers have shaped it be a certain way for centuries and millennia. So that's to me religion. Faith is, is what's between me and God. It's my connection to God. I know lots of people who go through the motions and I think have very little faith. One of the most visible attacks on Muslim Americans in recent memory is the travel ban of 2017. And Rabia, as an immigration attorney, has been banging the drum on the issue of executive powers. You know, one of my frustrations with my own community has been this, that after 9-11, the only thing we've been focused on, and it, it was important to focus on it but still, was like civil rights and national security related stuff, right? That's all we've been embroiled in since 9-11. And as I was practicing immigration, one thing I realized was the vast discretionary powers that exist in the executive when it comes to immigration. Even after 9-11, George Bush instituted something called special registration. Okay, most people have no idea this thing happened. I was there when it happened because what it meant was that if you were a man from 27 Muslim majority countries in this country, you had to go register, okay, with, with INS. This is before DHS. People would go to register and they wouldn't come back. You have a green card. Let's say you're a student. You're on a visa. You're working. There's so many different ways to be an immigrant in this country. So, you know, and there's already been other versions of the Muslim ban taking place, people are terrified. Like, if my husband goes to register, will he not come back? And many did not come back. They could go to register in Virginia and end up in a facility in Arizona. And the family doesn't know for weeks. I have been, since that time, t talking to my community, saying, you have to take immigration powers seriously. We have to talk about immigration reform. Much of what the response was from the Muslim community was, that's a Latino issue. I couldn't get people interested in this. And when he was campaigning, I said it over and over. I was like, you don't understand how much discretionary power there is in immigration. You can make the agency do almost anything you want with those powers. And that's what he's doing. And I was not surprised or shocked at all. The silver lining is that it finally got the attention of everybody who wasn't paying attention, right? Have you had conversations like with your nine-year-old about what's happening right now and, and just... So, you know, during the campaign, I watched it nonstop. The TV was never off, so she always... She saw it. And I remember during that time, she said, Mama, does he, he hates Muslims, right? He really hates Muslims, right? That was during the campaign, but I, I just never thought he would win. So when he won election night, again, my daughter was like, isn't that the one who hates Muslims? And that was hard. And so I had to have a conversation with her. I said, listen, Muslims have been here for 400 years. We're not going anywhere. This is our country. He can come and then he'll go. Simple as that. And I was like, and our last president's middle name was Hussein. Right. <laughs> I was like, that's America. The great thing is we can do something to change it. Rabia is the executive producer of the upcoming HBO docuseries, The Case Against Adnan Syed, which premieres on March 10th. Be sure to check out her podcasts, Undisclosed and The 45th, as well as her book, Adnan's Story.
In episode one, we spoke with best-selling author and activist Dave Eggers, and recently he's been visiting undocumented families living in sanctuary in Christian churches around the country. He's written pieces about this in various outlets, including The New Yorker. No, I just visited two more families okay. uh, that are living in sanctuary. Mm-hmm. The church converts storage rooms in the basement, and in each case it's a family that has under orders of deportation. In each case they have an American-born child. Mm-hmm. But the parents, while they're waiting for an appeal or some sort of movement on their case, they are living in the church because ICE has sort of a gentleman's agreement not to go into churches. But there's dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of families living in churches all around the country, which is just a horrifying state of affairs. The fact that we have this malevolent force, ICE, that sort of terrorizes these mm-hmm. communities and really shows a new kind of cruelty and their methodology is so horrifying sometimes and sort of offends the conscience. That obviously means religious leaders, pastors, or whoever it might be are doing Christ-like things. Yeah. So that's that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, you know, that's the other thing is I've been really inspired by these churches. These are the three churches I've been to, um, especially two of them I got to know the the, the leaders of the church are just really, they're living their faith. These churches, so many of them are activist churches that are saying, you know what, it's not enough to just read text and sing a song here and there on Sunday. If we're going to walk in the path of Christ, what did he do? You know, mm-hmm. this is somebody that welcomed and he was an immigrant himself. And uh, there's so many passages in the Bible about taking in the stranger and welcoming the traveler. I've been writing about these instances, and in each case, a lot of it is about the people in the church that have sort of banded together to help in this church in Richmond. I visited at night, about nine o'clock at night, and they have a night watch every night. So somebody sleeps in the lobby by the front door to make sure that ICE or anybody else doesn't try to break in at night, and the woman that night that was probably in her 70s you know she was going to sleep on a cot in the lobby and most of the churches that have sanctuary situations do have night watches and it's a terrible situation that it has to happen but it's inspiring to know that there are churches out there that are getting involved and there's no more powerful body i don't think than the churches and all the houses of faith if they all sort of got on the same page i think that it would be immeasurably powerful You can pick and choose what you want in any of these texts, but if you read most of the New Testament, like there's one note, you know, which is love your brother, forgive your neighbor, embrace the stranger, like over and over if you're going to really observe. What do they say about um, it's more difficult for a rich man to enter heaven than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, right? Mm. You know this passage? No, but anyway. the, I'm a secular Hindu from St. Louis, so I don't know <laughs> what I'm talking about. Well, I grew up as a, you know, in a Catholic family, or at least my mom's side, but it was a, a church that didn't really do a whole lot. I mean, half of our masses were in Latin, so mm. we didn't have the opportunity to sort of see faith in action or applied to the real world. And, and that's why I'm very interested to see these churches that really... They're like, well, we have 500 congregants, 500 members of the church. What if we got everyone together 
and we did a food pantry and we, you know, we did an exchange with another church in Guatemala and they come here, we go there. What if we banded together to do this or let's do a, you know, a fundraiser. For... There's so much power there. There's so much power and ability. And, um, and I think what we keep finding is these churches that are more activist have much younger and more passionate congregations than those that sort of just repeat the same mantras over and over without any context. I'm always optimistic, and I always think that we tend to correct ourselves in this country. It's a zigzag path that we take, but I think that things tend to, over time, improve, right? If you look at the long arc of history. So this is a radical and shocking and dispiriting few years of backsliding, but I think it will energize, and I think it has energized so many millions of people to remember what we actually are all about and what we stand for and what even the founding fathers stood for you know like if you want to go that far back and read the actual writings and so many of the founding principles it really was about a radical liberal society really that would never accept this kind of authoritarianism that the current administration is trying to convert us to Besides being one of the great writers of our generation, Dave is the co-founder of 826 National, an organization that promotes literacy and creative writing in underserved communities. More recently, he helped start the International Congress of Youth Voices. Check out both these organizations in our episode notes. Up next, I'll break down the song you've been hearing throughout the episode, Have a Little Faith. But first, a recommendation of another podcast I think you'll enjoy. What happens when you listen into more than 140,000 different communities? Made up of 330 million users. You hear a lot of stories. I'm Amory Sievertson. I'm Ben Brock Johnson, and we are from Endless Thread, the show featuring stories found in the vast ecosystem of online communities called Reddit. Every week, we tell a different story, from mattress industry conspiracy theories to jellyfish stings that bring victims a sense of doom, and even a serial killer that may have saved jazz music. Subscribe to Endless thread wherever you get your podcasts. Something I really wanted to do and, and add to the album was create a song that was uplifting and inspiring and something that people could march to, something that people could protest to and kind of keep your energy up throughout the day. I wanted to strike a, a more hopeful tone and I was definitely inspired by a couple songs by Curtis Mayfield and The Impressions. Keep on pushing. Keep on and of course, um, people get ready. People get ready. The train Those were used a lot during the civil rights marches and bus rides in the 1960s. And even Martin Luther King, I think his favorite song of theirs was We're a Winner. We're a I started writing this almost right away after the election. I'm looking at my voice memo right now on my computer from November 2016. <laughs> As soon as I came up with the riff, I kind of knew 
where I wanted to go with it. And have a little faith is, you know, it's a saying, come on, dude, have a little faith, you know, trust me, we're going to get it done. And I, I love that. I love that secular but religious meaning that it holds. One of the first lines of the song that I written was a saying that a lot of Christians say, just let go and let God. I want to talk to you today about letting go and letting God. They say let go and just let God. But then the next line there is, but I got the feeling that he forgot. But I get the feeling he forgot. That's just a little bit lightheartedness. That must have been the day that God rested, November 8th, 2016, because he was nowhere to be found. And the refrain, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And I did a riff on that. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And I, I just love this song. It's catchy. It makes you feel pretty good. And one of my favorite bass players is Aston Barrett from The Wailers. He's maybe underappreciated, but a lot of what made them so great were his melodic bass lines. With the bass line, I mean, a lot of my bass lines have that dub reggae, Jamaican feel because Aston Barrett is the man. And even this guitar solo. To come back to the Wailers was definitely inspired by Junior Marvin's solo on Waiting in Vain. This song was pretty pared down. It's a pretty organic thing, except for maybe one element, which was a, uh, a wavetable synth in Logic called ES2. Just some sound design. But I do this doo-wop guitar chords. It's kind of like taking the place of a hi-hat sometimes, especially in live settings when I'm, for certain shows, I play solo. When I play guitar, I am trying to approximate a full band feel so rhythmically I gotta be doing something and melodically as well so it's this mix of reggae and doo-wop and uh, in the song Brother Can You Spare Some Peace of Mind I used a plugin called Addictive Drums and I used Addictive on this song too something that's cool about that plugin is that you can fatten your drums you can double up on your drums inside the app um so if you want like a lindrum kick to hit with your acoustic kick simultaneously you can just seamlessly do that it's very cool so this is the main drum you hear it and then this is kind of like the uh, reinforcement i played tambourine on this song and my favorite part is this ending where it kind of retards. I had no guests on this record. Uh, nobody else played a single thing, except I had my friend Aliyah Sade sing some backup for me on this one and another song, um, Giant. She's on Giant. Aliyah is a great songwriter and singer. I met her when she was 17, and that was a few years ago now. Just impressed me right away. I think she had such a great timbre. The timbre just means kind of the essence of the sound. 
something I, I realized at a young age was that rock and roll and what was so great about rock and roll was all the wailing. You think of the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin, something like that. You think about the energy that they bring. Does anybody remember life? But rock and roll came out of black American religious music and that yearning for God, that emotion when, when speaking about life and death and God and your relationship with God. To believers, that is the most powerful thing in the world. And when you hear somebody singing to God with all their passion, it's incredibly moving. And that's what rock and roll kind of did. They just made it about a girl. So when you listen to music like the Staple Singers, and you hear Mavis just going off, and you listen to Nasrat Fatah Ali Khan, the Pakistani treasure, when he sings that Sufi music, it's otherworldly. It's the rocket ship. You know, I've always loved gospel music. There's just some great artists. I mean, black and white. I, I think the Carter family is probably the best religious white music from America. And there's some great artists that you might not have heard of. Artists like the Swan Silvertones. Or the Pilgrim Travelers. These people are, are just amazing. And even the Chambers Brothers. Lester Chambers is just so crazy, like, in terms of just bringing it with all his passion. And now here's the full song, Have a Little Faith. Be sure to come back next week. We'll be talking about Russia. Our guests are Jack Bryan and Laura Du Bois, whose film Active Measures examines Trump's dealings with Russia. And journalist Neil Doherty will be back to talk about his film Putin's Way.
Peace of Mind is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency, one of the few women-owned and operated networks. If you want to support them, consider joining Critical Frequency Premium, where you can get access to ad-free and bonus content for shows like Drilled, Peace of Mind, and a bunch of others. Check it out at criticalfrequency.org slash join. I'll be performing in D.C. on April 18th, New York on April 19th, and Boston April 20th. Tickets are available on peaceofmindpod.com. And don't forget, all music from the show is available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon. To pre-order vinyl and get access to bonus content and other cool stuff, join me on Patreon at patreon.com slash beman. That's patreon.com slash b-h-i-m-a-n. This episode was written and produced by Katie Ross, Amy Westervelt, and me, B. Beeman. All music for the show was written and performed by me, and you can find it on Spotify, Apple, and Amazon. This episode was mixed by Elliot Peltzman and me. Additional editing from Finn Matthews. For extra content and upcoming tour dates, go to peaceofmindpod.com. And please support us by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And join us next week for some peace of mind.